Welcome to Becoming Boundary, the podcast that teaches you how to say yes to the space you need and the connection you crave. I'm your host, Krista Resnick. I'm a master life coach and boundary expert for women. I'm also a sought-after speaker and mother to three adultish sons. It wasn't that long ago that I was a boundary disaster. My time never felt like my own. I couldn't set a boundary and speak my truth. And my most important relationships suffered greatly. Fast forward to today, and I've successfully coached thousands of women to heal from their people-pleasing patterns and step into true freedom and confidence. I created Becoming Boundary to help you do the same. Be sure to tune in for tips and tools from me, interviews with other incredible coaches and therapists and speakers, plus one-on-one live coaching calls and so much more. If you're ready to start setting healthy boundaries so you can create the space you need and the connection you crave, then you're in the right space. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Becoming Boundaried. I have such a treat of a guest on today's podcast. But before we dive into that, I want to personally invite you to my upcoming workshop, Coming Home to You. This workshop is designed to help you understand codependency at a little bit deeper level to help you understand where some of your codependent thinking patterns may have gotten started and to help you really reconnect with what I like to call the engine body, the soma, the feeling body. Many of us, due to our people-pleasing, placating, fawning patterns, learned that it wasn't safe for us to be in the body. We had to disconnect in order to be others focused. And so we're going to use simple somatic practices in this workshop to get back into the body so we can start to feel again. And when we start to feel again, this is how we begin to heal. So I will leave the link for the workshop in the show notes. You can read more about it. You can read all of the details. I would be so honored and humbled to have you in this workshop. It really, really is a fantastic way to start to really resource your nervous system so that you can really, really do some sustainable and transformational healing work. Okay, I want to read to you a quote from a book called The Real Self-Love Handbook, and it goes like this. Every day I struggled to put on that happy smile before leaving the house to face the world. I had a deep sense of not being good enough, so I would strive to learn more facts, do more good, give more love, and achieve more goals. Friends, does this resonate with you? This quote is from my guest today, Dr. Andrea Pennington, who wrote this beautiful book, The Real Self-Love Handbook, and Dr. Andrea has a pretty impressive bio. She had all of the things. She did all of the things. And yet there was still this hole in 
her soul. And so this is what we're really going to unpack and talk about at a deep, deep level on today's podcast. Dr. Andrea is a black American integrative physician. She's a psychedelic assisted therapy facilitator and creator of the cornerstone process for conscious evolution and the attunement meditation. Dr. Andrea has written or contributed to 18 books and is the best-selling author of the Real Self-Love Handbook. She is also an international speaker with over 4 million views of her TED Talks. She hosts the Conscious Evolution podcast and has a vast career in global media and documentary filmmaking. Again, she's got a really, really impressive bio. And at the end of the day, the the point that I want to really drive home here is she still had this underlying gap, this hole in her soul. And so she's going to talk to us today on, on this fabulous interview of how she really began to heal her inner child, how she began to reprogram her subconscious mind to really transform from this victim story to her own personal hero story. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Andrea Pennington. Welcome to the show, Dr. Andrea. Thank you so much for having me, Krista. It is an honor. I'm so happy to have you here and just tell the listeners just for, you know, shits and giggles where you are right now. Cause I'm having a little bit of envy, but let's just get, <laughs> let's just put that on the table and get that out of the way. Well, I am up in the Alps in France. I live in the South of France normally, but I'm up here with my fiance in the Alps, in the mountains. It's a beautiful blue sky with a little bit of clouds, mm. not too hot, just really nice. Are you a skier? I am no longer a skier. I grew up in Denver and I skied when I was young, but yeah, no, I don't do it anymore. Okay. Gotcha. Well, when you think of the Alps, you just automatically, my mind goes to skiing. Yeah. It's not far from here. There's actually still a little bit of snow, um, but no, it's not my thing. I don't like being cold. So. Yeah. Oh, I get that. (laughs) I get that being a Midwest girl. I get that. Yeah. So today we are unpacking, doing kind of a deep dive of self-love, and this topic is so near and dear to my heart for so many reasons. Mm. So you, you wrote this book, and I was sharing with you before we hit the record button that I read this, probably it's going on three years ago, and I can recall lying in bed, we were on vacation and I had my highlighter and I had my pen and I was just having so many beautiful aha moments. And I think for me, you know, where I'd like to start is I didn't realize so many of my, let's just call them issues for now. So many of the things that were showing up in my life, that, that sounds a little nicer, (laughs) was really connected to this lack of self-love. I, I thought if I just had the right system, I thought if I just did this or I showed up this way, all would be well. Not realizing there was this big underbelly, this thing called lack of self-love. So do you find that a lot in your work that, that people aren't even aware 
Yes. And I, like you, I was one of those people. Like, I know that I grew up with this overarching sense of kind of doom and gloom. I would have called it depression all the way from, from my childhood. And it wasn't until my early 30s when I was working in my, my wellness center. We had an integrative holistic practice working with people with substance use disorder and eating disorders. And we had everything set up like perfectly. They had nutrition consults, they had acupuncture, they had fitness, they even had a holistic spa and we had all of this group therapy. So all of their needs were met. And yet I found that there was like this subset of my patients that weren't getting better. They would either sabotage, they'd switch addictions, and it was baffling to me. Now, I will admit, at, at the time I was in my early 30s, I was just early in my trauma training. But as we sat with this interdisciplinary team and I started listening and then interviewing the patients that weren't doing well, I started to recognize that they didn't believe they were worthy of happiness or success. They didn't believe that they deserved love. And they didn't say that, but all of what they were relating reflected that. And what was weird was it, it sort of, you know how somebody says something and it just like, ooh, it like hits you. You're like, that resonates. I didn't have those words. I wouldn't say, oh, I lack love for myself or I hate myself. But as soon as they said it, it was like, oh my God, that really hits home. Mm. And that was when I realized I didn't love myself. And in fact, that was what drove a lot of my compulsive need to prove myself and perfectionism and all of these other behavioral reactions that started in childhood because of the toxic and dysfunctional family I had. So even though I didn't have the substance use or other compulsive behaviors that my clients did, I had other compensatory behaviors. And at the root of it was this lack of self-love. And as you know, for the last 20 years, that has been what I focused on because I recognized it didn't matter how many hours of psychotherapy, didn't matter if people went through gastric bypass surgery or we put them on this drug or this diet, if they didn't get to this fundamental foundation of self-love, nothing would stick. None of their health programs would stick. And, and that's why I focused on self-love and self-identity. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the things, if you can recall, Andrea, what were they saying? So you said they weren't actually saying, I don't love myself. If you can, if you can think back just so that the listeners might be able to identify themselves in the story. Sure. Well, one of the things that I heard was not that you've heard of internal family systems. Oh yeah. Love it. Okay. Love it. I love it too. So early on, before I really learned IFS, what I heard people say was, yeah, well, you know, part of me is, is really afraid that if I lose this weight, then I'm going to be seen. And I'm like, okay, so what's so scary about that? And what I would hear is that, well, it reminds me of the time when I was a little kid and maybe they were teased for being, for something about their body or maybe they recognized that being at a thinner weight was when they started to get negative attention or sexualized attention, or maybe even sexual abuse. So in other words, what I heard them saying was they, they had excuses that were tied back to some of these inner child issues. 
And then when you got down to the, the fundamental core of it, I'm like, yeah, but you're, you're an adult now. Mm-hmm. And you know that that uncle that did whatever, or that mean bully on the playground that did whatever, they were wrong for what they said or what they did. You are the competent adult now. So in my mind, you shouldn't be bothered by that. And it was when I learned that the inner child is stuck in time. They don't have the conscious awareness that we do as adults. Their mind, their whole mindset is fixed in the past. And then when you ask them, do you believe you're worthy of love? Like in uh, either the two chair dialogue, kind of a gestalt therapy or with guided meditations or with hypnosis, that inner child would say, well, of course I don't deserve love. I'm not lovable. That was something that I understood because in my household, it was very much emphasized that you're basically worth nothing unless you're getting good grades, Mm -hmm. unless you're performing at a certain standard. And so that was, again, when I saw this reflection and I thought, oh my God, I have the same thing. I have this fundamental belief that I am not worthy of love or attention or affection unless I'm doing, unless Mm -hmm. I'm performing, unless I'm achieving. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh. I mean, you hit so many, you hit so many nails. I'm, I'm thinking of a, several clients, several clients that I've worked with a couple in particular that had very Ivy league families and they were, they were pushed. So if they came home with 95%, super excited as little children, I got a 95 mom might look at them and go, where's the other 5%? What happened there? Because Cassie down the street, she got a hundred. What's going on with you? And these, these women couldn't figure out. It took them a while, but I had good parents. They pushed me. They wanted me to succeed in life. And when we started to play with those parts and when we started to talk about, okay, you're 42. So logically, yeah, you get, you get that, that mom was just trying but it's that little nine-year-old girl that was standing there going, but, but mama, like, really? Uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's the biggie, I think, right there. Yeah, absolutely. And I felt that. I really did. I felt that. I felt that knowing, you know, I didn't have language for it, but I, there was a knowing. There was an intuitive knowing that, yeah, there's a part of me that believes what my father set up in childhood. I'm not worthy unless I'm doing stuff. And even though consciously I got it, and the same thing with my clients, intellectually, they got it. But the wounding that happens in our childhood happens at a point, if it's before your 20s, your prefrontal cortex, this part that is involved in executive function and reason isn't even formed. It isn't fully formed until we're in our mid twenties. So if you had programming or injuring or trauma before the age of 18, before you had a prefrontal cortex to make sense of it, you just believed everything. Yep. If the way people treated you was you're not worthy unless you get good grades, you're not worthy of being seen or heard, then you just took it on as truth. And so I think that's why a lot of people struggled with it, at least in my, in my medical practice, because there was this disconnect between what the conscious mind believes and what the subconscious mind is holding on to. Yeah. 
One of the examples I always use, I, I have a very playful personality. So I like to bring levity into my work whenever I can, because sometimes this work can feel pretty heavy. And so when we can, when we can bring some play in, I think it lightens the load a little bit. And so I'll often share with clients that, you know, many of us, not all of us, but many of us around the globe believed in this person that on December 24th would put on the red suit, fly around the world with however many reindeer it was, you know, one with the red nose, climb down people's chimneys for crying out loud. Like, you know where I'm going with this, right? And at a certain point, 10, 12, 14, whatever, we were able to go, whoa, 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 not making sense here. Like we were able to, I call it debunk that, but we don't know how to take some of those core beliefs that you're speaking about and debunk some of those. And so we go out into the world and we wonder why, you know, we keep attracting the same gaslighting partners, or we just can't lose the weight, or we can't make traction in our business or whatever it is. And it's because there's this whole, you know, belief system sitting, I call it, you know, below, below the waterline, the iceberg theory, you know, all of that stuff that's hiding underneath. Exactly. That's exactly what I saw. We wonder why we have these destructive patterns, why we tend toward burnout, why when we do achieve all of the success, we don't feel fulfilled. You know, yeah. I was one of those people that looked at it's either 100% or zero. So getting a 95 or a 97 or 98 didn't fill me with any sense of joy. And that translated from childhood into adulthood. So even when I had the big successful career and the money and the expense account and the car and the fame, I was still feeling inadequate. Yeah. Like I had all sorts of imposter syndrome. I was on TV every day, had done Oprah, had made the money, all these things. And yet I had this fear that someone was going to find out that I'm not smart enough or not good enough or not worthy. Mm. And it made no sense. When I started to really unravel it, it made no sense. It's like, come on, Dre. Like, this makes no sense until you start to get into these deeper layers of what's going on in our unconscious. Yeah. Yeah. So you had the gift of these clients mirroring back to you exactly the work that then you would set out to explore on your own. So talk to us a little bit about what that looked like for you. Yes. Yes. It looked like doing the same five-step cornerstone process that I led my patients through. And you know it because you've read the book, but yeah. in the Real Self-Love Handbook, I shared that the process I took my clients through began with awareness, acceptance, accountability, mm. inspired action, and appreciation. And in each of those phases, we have all sorts of questions and questionnaires and practices to really get down to the root of how did you get programmed? So I had to look at my programming. And what, what you know, and I'll let the listeners in on, what we ultimately want to get down to is who are you really? Like, who is the authentic self? Who were you intended to be based on your soul print before you got the social programming, the media programming, and any other coercion that happened? And so I did the same thing for myself. I went through these exercises. I went on retreats. I started on my own self-help journey. I sat with 
curanderos and shaman and went to you know sacred medicine ceremonies with psychedelics and really did this deep investigative work to find out how I got programmed and why I, I was still holding on to some of these beliefs. And I want to come back to that because you said something a minute ago about how we get kind of programmed into perfectionism or maybe being the good girl or whatever role we're taking on. And to some extent, you have to almost deny that you've been shifted away from your true self as a child, because you need to maintain your relationship with those caregivers. So even though they were wrong, there's a part of you that's like, but I'm dependent on them. In my eyes, there's still, you know, mommy and daddy, I have to love them because maybe they're not all bad. Maybe there's also good things. And, and so when we start to unravel that, there comes kind of this moment that's almost a schism where we realize if I really face the truth of how I may have been abused, or at least coerced and molded into a role that isn't in alignment with my authentic self, I also have to come to realization that my parents are not perfect, that they've wounded me. And that can be hard for some people because they feel like, wait, if I admit to this wounding or even trauma or abuse, then what happens to that relationship with these primary caregivers that I may still love? And as I went through that process, um, there were there were many moments of reckoning yeah. and and sadness. And I grieved. I had to grieve the loss of a healthy relationship with my mom. Like there, there were so many things you read it in the book. There were so many great things that I got from my mom that have allowed me to be thriving and successful. But in the last few years, I've also uncovered how much of her wounding yeah. seeped into me and caused me to be disconnected from my ethnic heritage, from my authentic voice. So it's, that's the process that I went through. And I wish I could say it was instantaneous. I wish it was like, you know, recovery, you know, you do your 28 days or your three months and then you're golden. Yeah. For me, it started in my thirties. It continued through my forties and now I'm, I'm 51 and I'm grateful to say that I feel complete ease and love and respect for my parents and forgiveness, yeah. but also complete recognition of how they, as wounded adult children of dysfunction, they completely screwed up me and, and my siblings. Um, but now I'm, I'm able to stand in my power and sovereignty. And that's ultimately what I want for everyone. Mm. Mic drop, <laughs> drop all the mics. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of a client that I recently worked with. And what's interesting, I'll come back to the client. As you were speaking, I wrote down grief because I wanted to come back to that. Like, mm-hmm. and you, and you, it was before you even said it. I wrote down this, this work is, is grief work. Yes. So much grief work. And I don't think that we always are willing to talk about that, but it is, it's so much grief work. And I'm seeing that with a client currently in that mom totally abandoned when she was a young teenager young teenager. And so this client had to step in and take the role of mother for her siblings, literally had to go to work to provide backpacks for siblings, lunch accounts. And so I'm noticing as we're dipping our toe in this work and we're moving very slow, there is this pull of F you mom, how could you, why? 
And then immediately what will follow up with that is, but you know, life is so short and I should forgive. And, you know, and of course, right. Because these are some of the beliefs that we buy into, you know, we'll read a meme on Instagram that says blood is thicker than water or life is short or whatever. And we slap that on this oozing, goozing wound and just think that that's how it needs to be. And we should just press on. And that's what happened in my case. You know, I, it's only, I mentioned this, that it's been in the last two years that I've uncovered so much more of my trauma. And that was inspired by my mother having Alzheimer's Mm. and having a stroke in the pandemic, in the lockdown of COVID. She had a stroke and I couldn't fly to America because of the COVID rules. Yeah. And I, I spoke to the ICU doctor and he said, don't even bother. Even if you could get on a plane, we wouldn't let you in the ICU because of the COVID rules. Yeah. And he said, furthermore, she's going to be dead in within three days. So you might as well just stay in France. Mm. And that really knocked me into a wave of grief. I had already kind of grieved the loss of my mom because about three, four years prior, her dementia had really gotten to the point where she just she only had memories of of the very distant past. And so I had already kind of grieved the loss of my mother, uh, especially in one of my ayahuasca ceremonies. But when this hit in the pandemic, I I got knocked again. Like there was the immediacy of losing my physical mother and Mm -hmm. I couldn't go to America. And so, you know, I sat in 12 step groups and I sat with my emotions and I journaled and I meditated and I prayed and I cried. I grieved the loss of my mother, but then I also chose to look at the positives because there was a time, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a mother, a single mom running a, a global company from France. There was a moment where it was like, okay, I have to be functional. So let's focus on all the positives. Let's focus on all the positive things that I got from my mother. And that helped kind of buoy me through. And then I had the opportunity to sit in a sacred ceremony with psilocybin mushrooms. And I connected with the soul of my mother. Mm. And I, I, at that time I had bought a ticket to America and I told her, hold on, I'm coming. Mm. And I kind of gave my blessing that if she did pass, I'm okay with that. I did make it to America. I did see her one last time Mm. before she transitioned. And then I came back home and sat in another sacred ceremony with magic mushrooms. And that time again, I grieved, but just like we've been talking about this inner child stuff, I was shown a scene of me as a tiny baby. And there was all this kind of chaos in the household. I should say that my my parents divorced when I was three and I grew up with uh, one sister and one brother and then there another sister and brother from other marriages. And there, I could see in this scene with the psychedelic, like this chaos. And I, I know my mom and dad were having troubles and they eventually divorced. So I asked my sister about it because what I saw in this scene was I saw this darkness that was seeping into baby Andrea. Mm. And as I'm sitting in the ceremony, I wept for the baby that I was that took on all this darkness. And I saw that I had taken on this belief that it was all my fault. And that kind of knocked me on my ass because I thought, wow, as an adult, I've never consciously, there are a lot of crappy limiting beliefs I've had, but that one was never one I was conscious of. 
but I could see how it played out from childhood into many of the decisions I made as a rebellious teenager, all sorts of things that I did. And I wept and I grieved for the baby that took on this darkness, for the young infant who was spanked and whipped for silly reasons. Yeah. I grieved the teenage mom, much like your client. I had to grieve the teenage me that lost my mother. My mother was at that point single. She was a physician. She was super busy. She was rising in her career. She was pretty much absent. And she didn't know how to mother because my grandmother died when my mom was only 10 years old. Mm. But as much as I compassionately understood that as an adult, I didn't have the opportunity to grieve what I didn't get as a child. And, and that's, that's hard for some people because they, they do sit in that place of compassion. where, like, I get it, mom, you didn't have the tools, the capability. You didn't have the, the rehab, the 12 steps. You didn't have all of that or therapist, but I also had to do that grieving so that I could rescue these parts of myself, this yeah. inner child, this inner teenager and forgive myself. Like I came away with so much forgiveness for myself because I carried so much shame, like, oh, you were a delinquent, you were skipping mm-hmm. school, you were hanging with the bad kids until I got, you know, re- recalibrated. So I'm glad that you bring in the, in the grief thing, because it is a huge part of our healing journey. And it's only when we grieve that we can get to the acceptance, that second phase of the cornerstone process where we can say, okay, I get it. Those things happened in the past. It's not pretty. I'm not saying that I condone any of the abuse that happened, but I accept that now I do have the mental faculties to choose what I'm going to do going forward. And I can change the narrative. I carried a a victim mentality and a feeling of wrongness and badness and never enoughness. And it was literally in my late forties and early fifties that I was able to change that narrative. And that's why that book is out there. That's why I share my story so publicly because I realize there are so many people that have suffered like I did in silence without anyone mirroring back that what we've experienced has been traumatic and it needs a comprehensive healing process. Yeah, that is such a powerful story. Such a powerful story. And I think there's a question coming through and I'm I'm having a little bit of trouble framing it up. I want to go back to, you know, you had, you had done the magic mushrooms and that really kind of opened you up to this memory for the person who might not be willing to dip their toe into that, into the mushrooms, into some of the psychedelics. Would your advice perhaps be something about, I'm just curious here, riding the wave of a consistent feeling, like there's this consistent feeling of carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. There's this consistent feeling of, you know, I was chatting with somebody yesterday. It was actually a colleague that there's this consistent victim feeling for her. So what, what advice might you be for that person? That's like, Oh, I'm not ready to go to the mushroom side quite yet. And have those, all of that open up. But is there something that I need to know about in infancy, you know, before we have some of those memories, because like for me, I I don't have a lot of conscious memories. Mm-hmm. I have a few, but there are definitely some prevalent feeling states. Yeah. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. One of the things I invite people to do totally for free is to engage in a certain meditative practice 
that can help you access safely the unconscious, your subconscious mind, without necessarily flooding you with all sorts of traumatic memories from the past. And I outline this in the Real Self-Love Handbook, and I host totally free guided meditations every month. And one of the things that we ask people to do is exactly as you described it. If you notice there's a pervasive, persistent behavioral reaction or emotional response. So let's say you have this behavioral reaction that's like you're a procrastinator, like you set out to do something, but then you find yourself procrastinating. Or like me, you, you set out to do something, but then you find yourself tweaking it to perfection. You get into perfectionism. These behavioral responses that you can see, they're like pervasive. You start to plot a timeline of your life and you see, gosh, I've been doing this since high school or grade school. Those can be an entry point that we take into the meditation process or journaling process where we can access younger parts of ourselves to find out where did this belief or this reaction spring from? And on the emotional reaction, maybe you're someone who freezes whenever there's conflict, or maybe you fawn and you appease to people. Maybe you are a little bit on the codependent spectrum or you're a people pleaser or you can't say no. You can start to look at those emotional reactions and try to trace back. It doesn't have to be the absolute original wounding, but trace back and see if you can access an early part of you and then bring that part forward in the meditative process. I have free guided meditations online that will show you how to do this safely. And you can do journaling. If you're not a visual person and you can't imagine yourself at five years old, maybe you get a photograph and then you do the journaling practice. And, and these are great ways. When we couple that with breath work, particularly like the holotropic breath work that was created by Stanislav Grof and his late wife, Christina Grof, you can get into these deeper expanded states of consciousness without using any psychedelic substances. And that's what we do in our retreats. We, we lead retreats in different countries and there are people who don't want to take you know, these psychedelic substances and you can safely get into these expanded states and access these parts of your, of your past. Yeah, yeah. I think the breath work, to your point, that last piece there is, it, it, it's medicine. Yes. Our own breath is free. medicine. And it's, it's free. free. And you can turn yeah. it off. Like if you're yes. in the middle of a psychedelic trip and you're finding that it's uncomfortable, you can't turn that off. But yeah. with, with breath work, you can change your breathing pattern to come back into the here and now. And, and it's free. Yeah. 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 So if it's okay with you, well, no, actually, before we dive into, I want to, I want to touch on the five steps a little bit, but before we do that, I think a really important thing to unpack is how do you define self-love? Oh, yes. Self-love for me is unconditional self-acceptance. It is a love and tenderness for yourself. We often describe it as the same love and tenderness that you would see a mother have for a tiny baby. Mm -hmm. It's not expecting perfection or any performance and just accepting that you have this inherent worth and, and inherent lovability. That's yeah. what it is for me. Yeah. Yeah. I actually teach it the same. I talk about acceptance. They go hand in hand, self-love acceptance. I don't have to love necessarily the parts of me that, you know, in the aging process are shifting and things are happening, but I do need to accept it. Yeah. 
And I think that's where people get so tripped up is I have to love all of these parts of myself. And I don't know that that's actually true. I think the acceptance part, and then that will ultimately lead you to, you know, loving that part, those parts. Yes. Yes. It's the same for me. Yeah. Unconditional self-acceptance and relating to yourself in the present moment. So to be an unconditional self-acceptance means we're not comparing ourselves to some ideal from the past that we really wanted to attain or to something that's imposed on us by the media or our parents or anyone else. It's being in this present moment and being able to look at the quote unquote imperfections, the blemishes, the mistakes, and just saying, you know, I accept you wholeheartedly and with compassion and you deserve love. And so I'm going to love you just as you are. Yeah. I love that. I actually, you remind me of the post that I made um, just the other day. It was something about uh, not enoughness. Uh, It's my own post, so I should know it, but (laughs) it was something to the effect of not enoughness, unworthiness. It's big business. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's big business. And so I think, you know, if you are somebody who is struggling in this realm, one of the most simple, practical tangible things you can do is really start to examine who you're following and what you are allowing into your environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we, we, you know, we pick up on the vibes of everyone else. And I mean, you and I, we sort of teased up this idea of boundaries before we started recording. And for me and my self-love journey, I did have to set new boundaries. As soon as I realized that the opinions of others had so poisoned my mind Mm. that I needed to divorce myself from certain people, including family members for a period of time. I was prepared for it to be forever because I realized if I stay in these toxic relationships, they are gonna continue to treat me like they've always treated me. Yep. So I cut ties for a a period of time. I guess I'm one of the lucky few that eventually my family, they got on board. They're like, oh, okay, this is the new Dre. We get it now. Um, you know, there would be a, occasional little snide comments and people trying to put me back into that old place. But ultimately, I've been able to stand in this sovereignty. And having those boundaries and removing myself from toxic people, listening to toxic, you know, reports and all these other things has been the best boundary making that I could do for myself. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you point that out, Andrea, because... I teach, and we talked about this before we hit record, I do teach boundaries in a very non-traditional approach. Yes, you know, I do teach some traditional type tactile things as well, but what I see sometimes go so sideways in traditional boundary work is that we think we have to set these boundaries and they have to be rigid forever. And it can cause people a lot of pain and tension rather than understanding. Sometimes we do have to put people on the table for a while. Maybe it is forever. That is a possibility, but maybe we don't. And as we start to enter this healing work, begin advocating for ourselves, step into our sovereignty, stand at the helm of our leadership. We may be able to invite some of those people back in. And on our terms. Yes. And and then they have a choice rather than us saying, we have no choice. I have to go back to my family. It's like, no, you can 
establish the ground rules. And if they want to follow them, great. And if not, then you find a new community. And I think that's another reason why back in 2008, I created the Real Self-Love Movement was to provide a safe community. I had originally been working with some women who were homeless and separated from their families and they needed community. And for me, what I've recognized, and I know, I know this in the 12 step recovery movement is we recover in community, we heal oh. in community. And if your family of origin is no longer safe or your friends are no longer supportive, then you've got to seek out new community so that you can step into this newer, truer version of yourself. Amen. Hallelujah. All of the things I have yes. been saying this. I'm not even kidding you for the past several, several days. I've been on this kick. We have mm -hmm. got to, to remember that community matters. We heal in community. Yes. It's so essential to our healing. Yes. Thank you yes. for pointing that out. Okay. Again, before we dive into the five steps, one more question, talk to me, talk to the listeners about the word real, because that was put in there for a reason, real self-love. It's not just the self-love handbook. It's the real self-love handbook. Yes. Well, distinguishing between the self and the real self, I call it the authentic self. You know, in IFS language, we call it the self with a capital S. And as we talked about before, what I help people distinguish is who were you programmed to be? So we each take on these roles in childhood, the scapegoat, the black sheep, the good girl, the hero, what have you. And that is how you were molded and folded and maybe coerced into being. Your ego is just a construct. It's a construct based on survival. So based on what you saw in the environment and how you were treated, your ego took on certain characteristics, but that is not the real you. That is the programmed you. The authentic self is tied to what I call your, your spiritual DNA or your soul print. There are certain influences that we come into this life with that we are meant to live out wholly and completely. You know, I, I had a, a near-death experience way back in 2005, and that experience showed me that each of us incarnates as a soul. And it's up to us to determine who we will be in, in this lifetime, not mm -hmm. our parents, you know, not the media. And so stripping away all of the programming, all the way down to stripping away ethnicity and gender and all of those things to find out who is the real self or the authentic self. Because you will find if you can get tuned into the essence of you, you will understand that you are totally lovable. The things that happened in the past didn't make you unlovable. Yeah, you may have done some jacked up things. I'm not proud of everything I did in the past. But when I know that my authentic self is this essence, this soul, this pure beingness, it is truly lovable. And so that's, that's the distinction between the ego self and the real self. Yeah. I hope that encourages so many people that we get to create our lives. Yes. Mm. Yes, I hope it does too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay. Let's lightly unpack the four steps. So step number one is awareness. Why is that so important? For me, because you talked about this earlier. Sometimes we just get on an improvement program. Like we don't feel good. I don't feel enough. So I might try to bolster my resume and get more training or 
I, I feel like I'm not worthy, so I might get coaching on my confidence or whatever. And what I recognized as, as we talked about early in this interview was my patients weren't aware that they didn't love themselves and that they didn't give themselves permission to be healthy and whole. I was not aware of how much my wounding from childhood impacted my self-love and self-worth. And so in the cornerstone process, we start off with awareness where again, we unpack all of the programming, looking at the family history, looking at the, the words and the phrases that you heard at home that, that may have impacted your beliefs. And then again, in the book and in our, our programs, we have a, a host of exercises and journal prompts and even questionnaires that help you identify the real you, like these, these traits, these characteristics, these qualities and attributes. So that's step number one. We move into awareness where we can see the difference of who we've been programmed to be versus who we really are. And then, as we've talked about, you may need to grieve. You may need to forgive yourself. You may be ready to forgive people. But when we move into step two, which is acceptance, that's when we finally say, enough complaining, enough victim mode, I get it. This is just what has happened. And this is where I am today. I accept it as what is true. Yep. And we move into step three, which is accountability, where again, we're saying, I'm not going to blame anyone because from this point forward, I am accountable. I am responsible. And this is where we get to write our own self-narrative. In the past, you may have felt like the underdog or that life was happening to you or that you were the victim. You maybe even took on survivor mentality and that helped you, but that may not be where you want to go moving forward. You, want, you yeah. might want to actually create an identity that's more aligned with your heart and soul today. And so in step three in accountability, we help people write their own personal success mantra and their own self-narrative and maybe even take on some other archetypes Instead of the victim, maybe you want to be the hero. Instead of being the good girl, maybe you want to be a little bit rebellious. You know, maybe you want to shave your head into a, a mohawk. I don't know. Yeah. Everyone, everyone's different. Maybe you do want to get that right job or leave that country. And then when we move into this state of, of full accountability, we can then move to step four, which is inspired action. Mm -hmm. So rather than falling back on old patterns where we're people pleasing or we're perfectionistic or we're, we're looking to other people to define who we are and what we should do. We say, no, I'm going to learn. And it may be learning for the first time. I'm going to learn to tap into my heart and soul to even ask for higher wisdom. And I'm not going to take any action. It's just busy work just to look yep. busy. Instead, yep. I will make a commitment that the only action I will take is inspired action. And if I don't know what to, to do, I will ask. I will ask for inspiration in meditation or in journaling. And when we start to live that way, we start to gain more practice and more confidence in ourselves. The confidence that we probably lost through the programming and the, the, the drama and trauma of life. Yeah. You know, what's coming up for me in those two steps, three and four, is the concept of internal boundaries. A lot of people mm. will ask me now, do, can we set boundaries with ourselves? And mm. my response is heck yes. That's so much of the work that, that I do is teaching people how to set those internal boundaries, setting that boundary of I'm not going into victim mode. 
So what is it that I need to do to resource myself, to stop, to pause before I, you know, sit there for five hours going, oh, no clients are coming to me. Oh, I'm such a loser. Nothing in my life works. Those sorts of things. Does that seem true? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, what I'm, when I'm asking people to be in radical acceptance and accountability, I'm not asking you to, to be fake. Yeah. So there are going to be times when things do come up where you may still feel like a loser, but instead of wallowing in it and allowing it to drag you down into past programming, you might set a boundary and say, okay, you know what? For the next 10 minutes, I'm going to have my little pity party. I'm going to scream and rage and, and get it out because I don't want you suppressing emotion. That is a recipe for dis-ease. Mm-hmm. So we set these boundaries and we say, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do for this amount of time. And then from this point forward, we're going to move into action mode, either inspired action or self-care if that's what's needed instead of, once again, instead of that busyness that we often feel is, is compulsory. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. You know, that's something that I do a lot with clients is you get 10 minutes, literally you, you nailed it. They, they get a 10 minute timer, have your party, that timer goes off and we move on and we resource ourselves. Yes. Yes. Excellent. And we take that inspired action. Yeah. Speaking of inspired action, I have to tell you, uh, before we move into step five, uh, I sat down just, I think it was two days ago really had this beautiful insight coming through about a program that I'm creating. And it was so fun to me to take old school, like I actually stole a notebook from my 17 year old, you know, I think it was a science notebook okay, and a pencil Hmm. and just wrote by hand the entire thing out. It was like my inner child was loving that just old school tablet and pencil. It was so fun. Oh, I love that. I love it. I'm the same way. I have journals and notebooks and different colored pens all around because that part of me, that creative part of me loves to be very tactile and visual. Yeah. Yeah. It was really a way for me to honor that little girl who loved school and who loved to learn and who loved this is going to sound really strange, but it was, it was my thing. Loved handwriting. I remember mm. third grade was the year that we learned how to do cursive. Yes. <gasps> oh, that was like mm, crumb to la crumb for me. I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So that was just a really fun, simple way for me to honor that little girl and to really play with that inspired action. Yes. Wonderful. I yeah. love it. Yeah. The accountability part too, that is, that is one of my favorites because you're speaking to somebody who took no accountability for anything for decades. Mm. Like that was sort of my MO. That is what was modeled to me. I come from a lineage where we don't take responsibility. I don't know that I've ever heard the words, I'm sorry, leave my mother's lips. Wow. Well, it's not that I don't know. I never have. (laughs) I've never heard those words. Like we're just not the family that does that. So, and it's not always about, you know, saying I'm sorry, but that led me to this real lack of accountability for anything in my life. It was always somebody else's fault. Somebody else was to blame. If I was having a problem, 
your, it must be you, Andrea. It's gotta be you. Can't be me. Wow. That's interesting because I had the same. My mother was super proud and was never wrong. So there were no apologies. But as I shared with you, I took on the, okay, it must be my fault. I'm rat. I'm wrong. I'm bad. And so I had hyper accountability and hyper, you know, this sense of it's all my fault. So I've got to be the one to fix it. So I was always in fix it mode. Yeah. 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 And part of my deep healing work, and it sometimes can still reappear is working with that victim part of me, because when you're, when you blame, well, then there's gotta be a victim, right? Yeah. So I've had to sort of work with the drama triangle a little bit and, and recognize when I've gone into that victim mode and want to make, you know, somebody else the, the villain or, or whatnot. Yeah. 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 But the accountability for me, and, and I always, I always find myself hesitating a little bit when we talk about accountability, because there's so many people like you and in, in what your pattern was who overtook. Yeah. Right. So, so for the listener who's like, but I'm already taking, yeah. well, then your work and your healing would be, you know, to recognize that go back to the awareness piece. Right. Yeah. Or what advice might you have? Well, the other piece of the accountability that is really pivotal is that you're taking accountability for the narrative. Mm. So if your narrative has been, well, I got to be the good girl, or I have to be this achiever, like I've taken on the accountability. Okay. That worked for you for a very good reason. Like I needed to survive my childhood without getting overly spanked and overly punished. Yeah. And if I continued in that life pattern, I saw where it led me. It led me to burnout. It led me to having the ultimate career high and feeling empty and dead and miserable inside. So much so that I did not want my life anymore. So for me, accountability said, I've got to take up that pen and become the author of my life story moving forward. That's the true accountability. So there's this distinction between the accountability you've carried in the past versus me choosing the narrative going forward. Yeah. I work with a lot of entrepreneurs who are quickly moving into burnout. And I notice a lot of times the questions, Andrea, look like, how do I trust my staff? How do I do this? How do I do that? And so a great place to start is we've got to start asking better questions (laughs) because even in that verbiage, look at who's taking all the accountability. Like you're, you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders versus the question of what support can I bring in? Yeah. How can I best resource myself to lead and to stand in my sovereignty? And part of that may be what resources within yourself, because when someone asks a question, how can I, or why am I, then I always go back to, well, who's the I that is speaking? Because it's most likely not your authentic self. It's Mm -hmm. most likely a part. So the part of me that took on this perfectionistic behavior, of course, she, that part had this vocabulary of, I can't delegate to these other people. They're going to F it up. They're not going to do it as well as me. Yep. So when you ask that question, you have to say, who's the I that's speaking? 
because that mm. part may need addressing. Yes. And when I talked to that perfectionistic part, like I literally had to go back in, I, in a meditation, brought forth my inner child, an inner toddler, Mm. and had to do some reparative work like visually imagining saying no to my father and not letting him abuse toddler dre yeah and then letting her know that from this point forward you don't have to be perfectionistic and trying to get his approval because he got it wrong he was wrong i know you believed him but he was wrong and then i had to go to perfectionistic part of me which is more of a 20 something part and I had to say, listen, you're, you've been doing all this perfectionism because you thought you were rescuing and saving this inner child from getting abused. But now she knows that dad was wrong. And now I need you to know that dad was wrong. And we're no longer buying that. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be performing or achieving in order to receive love and care. And once I could do that and bring all of these parts up to date, it was much easier for them to say, oh, okay. So yeah, how can, who can I get to do this, this, this task? If it's mm. not really all about me doing it. Mm. Yeah. That's why I love IFS yeah. so deeply. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Working with all of those parts in the most loving and compassionate, kind, clear way is it's just such a game changer. Yeah. It's transformative. It really is. Oh, for sure. Okay. Step number five, last step. The last step is appreciation. We know that research tells us that the more we can focus on positive emotions and creating those positive emotions for ourselves, rather than waiting for something good to happen in the world, we can choose to live in an attitude of gratitude, to focus on the things that go right in our day, to focus on the things that are right about us on a day-to-day -day basis when we can incorporate that into our recovery work, we start to get an insulation of positivity. Mm. And I love the work of Barbara Fredrickson, who was the author of the broaden and build theory. And what she found in her research is every micro moment of positive emotion. So joy, awe, humor, appreciation, and gratitude. Every micro moment is like building up this positive psychological capital. We're building up an account of positivity that helps us weather the storm of negativity in our lives. Mm. And if you're going through a healing journey, my friend, you are going to encounter some negativity. Yeah. So the more that we focus on positive emotion, like gratitude, appreciation, we buffer ourselves. And so that is why it was built into the cornerstone process and it helps so many of my, my patients and my clients on their recovery journey. And it's now what it's, it's, it's part of the cornerstones, you know, it's, it's what keeps us moving forward. So what would you say is the fine line between somebody who's having a, let's, I don't really like to categorize, I don't like to categorize feelings because I think they're all valid and they all have messaging for us, feedback, but you know, they're stuck in a little bit of victim mode or they're having a unpleasant feeling. Where's that fine line for you between honoring that so that we're not stepping into spiritual bypassing or toxic positivity? Cause that's a thing as well. Right. And yet not getting stuck in the unpleasant feelings. 
I would take you back to what impacted me early in my life as a medical student. In my last year of med school, I got training in acupuncture for drug and alcohol detox. And then shortly after got more training in Chinese medicine. And in traditional Chinese medicine, we have these five elements that follow like the cycles of nature. And I want you to think about emotion as energy in motion. It has a cycle. It has a, a beginning, a rising, and a denouement, a falling. And if we look at it that way, then when an emotion comes up, rather than stuffing it away, numbing it away with food or sex or alcohol, drugs, or binging shows, we allow ourselves to experience the emotion, see it, name it, a great mindfulness practice, journal about it, yeah. give yourself maybe five minutes of 10 minutes to rage safely, not on other people, right? so that you can allow that emotion to come and give you the, the message that it has. And then you can thank it and mm. let it go. The appreciation because part, appreciating exactly. that emotion. Exactly. Because our uh, feelings are, are messengers. Yeah. And for me, that was pivotal. Once I learned that in the Chinese system, they don't have the same hatred for anger. Mm-hmm. Anger is seen as a righteous emotion. It's yeah. allowed. And if you stuff it away, that is a sure way to end up with dis-ease of one form or another. And so I don't want people to be in this toxic positivity, you know, rose-colored glasses. Yes, you may have to forcefully bring up the positive, but it, it, it is not at the expense of the negative. Because you're right, spiritual bypassing is a very common practice. People think they can just like meditate and just forget the, the negativity. And so in the, the Real Self-Love Handbook, I give people the attunement meditation, which is a five-step process that allows you to learn how to become the witness to these emotions. Mm. And that can be challenging if you have complex PTSD, because sometimes people get flooded. So yes. there are tips in there on how to, to manage that. But for most people, what we're learning to do is create greater nervous system balance and regulation that allows you to have greater tolerance for emotions because you're not getting swept away by them. You're allowing them to be seen for what they are. They're messengers, they're pieces of information, and then you let them fall away. And maybe they will inspire your next action. Maybe you do need to set better boundaries or you do need to protect yourself and and engage in better self-care. But the, the key is don't shy away from negative emotion just at the expense of, of being positive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So good. So good. Thank you. So do you have any offerings coming up? I mean, I know folks can, can lean into your work via Instagram. You've got a great feed. I don't know if you're on Facebook website, of course, all of it, all of the socials, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, you can follow me there to, to see what I'm up to on an ongoing basis. And if you visit my website, andreapennington.com, you'll learn about my monthly masterclasses, my monthly guided meditations for healing the inner child and practicing self-love. I also am leading retreats all around the world. So I'll be in North America at Omega Institute in September. I'll be in Costa Rica at Rhythmia for ayahuasca ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I host events all around the world. So get in touch. And of course, there are some free offerings. If you'd like to explore how to use the timeline of life events to investigate an emotional response or a behavioral reaction that's, that's persistent and troubling, and you'd like to kind of get in touch with these younger parts 
and get free from it, there's a life writing and meditation program called The Three Keys to Become the Hero of Your Life. And it features some of the exact exercises that all of my authors go through in my writer's program, Stories with Soul. And it's a free way for you to get that support. Mm, I love that. I think that is such a great place to start. Often that's where I have clients start. That's where I started. I remember, and it, it, and hopefully this is what you're talking about. I assume that it is, but writing out the timeline of your life. Yeah. And I, I did it back, you know, when I first started this work, I did it very sort of maybe primitively where I just, you know, I got out a piece of, again, a, a tablet yeah. and write horizontally down the piece of paper. I just started making these little tabs, these little marks okay, when I was five, this happened. And when I was in second grade, this happened. And I just kept going and it took me time. But then I was able to kind of do the bird's eye view and go, wow, look at the patterns. And look, you know, it's not always to the deep, dark wounding things. I think that's really important to point out for listeners. For me, I remember looking at that timeline. My first reaction was, I'm so resilient. Yes. I've overcome so much. I was so proud when I saw that. And then I was able to go into some of the, you know, darker places, but I just remember that feeling of, wow, I've really overcome a lot in my life. Yes. That appreciation. Yeah. And it starts with awareness. Like you're not aware. Maybe you're in the midst of something so heavy that you're just looking at all the negative. Once you do that timeline of life events and you start to recognize patterns, that is the first step. It's the awareness. So yeah, mm-hmm. in, in the, um, the free program, I give people video instructions, guided meditations, and a, a PDF that you can print out or just use as a guide to do exactly that. You create a timeline of life events, breaking your life into different chapters or different segments of time. And, and that's how we start to recognize that we're all on a heroic journey of the soul. We're all on a hero's journey. And when you can see that, it gives you more power. Yes. Yes. And we could do a whole podcast about power, but we'll, we'll end it here as I'm, I'm on this kick about, you know, we have been so disillusioned from the concept of power. And I really want women to understand specifically power is not bad. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah. We should, we should talk about it because my next book is about sovereignty. And as I was able to reclaim my power and sovereignty, it was a complete game changer for my life. One of my favorite words, sovereignty. Yeah. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And what a great gift to offer people being able to really go back and build that awareness around events and occurrences that have happened in the, in their lives. So thank you for that. And we'll have as always all of the links so that people can get in touch with more of your work. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. If you like this episode or you're a fan of the Becoming Boundaried show, the best way you can show your support is to share it on your social media outlets and with your family and friends. And if you're feeling really generous, we would love for you to hop on over to iTunes and give us a review. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a part of this community. Have an amazing week, and as always, stay true to you.